Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I'm going to jump right in because I've got a lot I want to say tonight. And so let me preface my remarks by saying my goal tonight uh, is to be a a pastor theologian to you. Uh, As a pastor, I want to encourage you and and equip you to be able to withstand uh, some false teachings that are out there and uh, to help you lay a good foundation that's absolutely essential uh, for the health of your Christian life. And then as the theologian, I want to take a particular doctrine and a particular perspective on that doctrine that, again, is absolutely fundamental and foundational. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to join me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and verse 18. And what I want to talk to you tonight is on the simple but important subject, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? Andreas Kostenberger wrote a blog uh, following up the debate that took place on... um, Wednesday night over at UNC between Bart Ehrman and Daniel Wallace on the accuracy of the scriptures, that is, how well have they been transmitted from the autographs to the Greek copies and then the English translations that we have today. And at the end of his uh, blog and at the end of his uh, synopsis, uh, Dr. Kostenberger, who teaches here, by the way, marvelous scholar, said, after the debate, I conducted an informal survey among those who had just witnessed the debate. And then he says this, one girl told me that she believed there were errors in the Bible, but that she believed in Jesus anyway. And what I want to do tonight is raise what I think is an absolutely essential, crucial, and fundamental question that all of us need to consider. We all need to grapple with it, and we need to answer it, and that is, what did Jesus believe about the Bible. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, we come to one of those texts that speaks to this issue very pointedly and very clearly. Jesus, of course, is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When I was in um, seminary, oh goodness, 30 years ago, I, I took a class in philosophy of religion with a professor named Russ Bush. Uh, Dr. Bush would eventually come here and for many years serve as our dean, and uh, he is now with the Lord, having died several years ago from, from cancer. But in that class, he made a statement that at the time I did not completely grasp the significance of it, but I, I will say to you today I now understand why he made such a big deal about this particular statement. And here's what Dr. Bush said. The question of biblical authority is ultimately a question of Christology. What you believe about Jesus will ultimately determine what you believe about the Bible. 
In other words, what you think about Jesus is going to be determinative as to the particular view you have of the Bible. Just say it this way. High view of Jesus, high view of the Bible. Low view of Jesus, and you will have a low view of the Bible. I am a part of a denomination, Southern Baptist. Many of you are a part of this denomination as well. That went through a rigorous and a, a brutal battle for several decades concerning the authority of the Bible. And by God's grace, the, those who hold to a high view of the Bible prevailed. And in the year 2000, we adopted a new statement on the Bible that is now in our Baptist faith and message. It's a really good theological statement as to what I believe the Bible teaches about itself. I believe it's uh, completely consistent with what Jesus believed about the Bible. It simply said that this way, the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author. Now, that right there is fundamental and crucial because if God is indeed a God of truth and the Bible is God's Word, then it follows naturally and logically and clearly the Bible is true. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. And the last statement, very, very crucial. In fact, uh, Tullian is going to speak later from Luke 24, and Luke 24 ties in magnificently with this last phrase, all Scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. And so what I want us to do tonight in the time that I have is raise and answer the question, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? What was our Savior's view of Scripture? Indeed, the early Clark Pinnock, and I say early Clark Pinnock because tragically by the end of his life, he had moved far away from his earlier theological convictions. But early in his life, he simply said this unreserved commitment to Jesus requires us to look at the Bible through his eyes. I think that's very profound. Unreserved commitment to Jesus. We sang about it a moment ago. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. If he is Lord then he is to have absolute authority in every area of your life, including what you think about the Bible. And if I could talk to that young lady that uh, Andreas talked to the other night, I would say, well, you know what? It is possible to believe that the Bible has errors and that you also believe in Jesus, but it is very, very inconsistent. It, it is very, very incompatible with bringing your life under his lordship because we're going to see very clearly our Lord had the highest possible view of the Bible. And if he is your Lord, then that should be your view of the Bible as well. There are a number of key texts where Jesus does speak to the issue of biblical authority. We've already read one of them, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He also speaks to it in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, and Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. He does so again in John's gospel, in chapter 10, verse 35, and chapter 17, verse 7. Actually, it's 17, 17. But I want to give us uh, tonight our attention to the Matthew text and just make two basic observations from this text and then bring some other scriptures to bear on the question as well so that we can develop a full-orbed uh, theology 
of what it was that Jesus believed about the Bible. So number one, Jesus believed all the Scriptures point to Him. In the midst of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, where He again and again addresses the kingdom of God, Jesus speaks to this issue of the Bible's truthfulness, the Bible's trustworthiness, and the Bible's authority. And indeed, verse 17 introduces us to the high view of Scripture held by Jesus. Now, I want to be fair. There's no question that he has at this particular point in time in history, he has in view the Bible of his day, that is, the Old Testament Scriptures. But, and you need to get this, what he affirmed about the Old Testament, he also promised concerning the New Testament. And I think John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, make this very, very clear. By the way, as a quick aside, you're trying to take like a bazillion notes. Uh, by Monday, uh, this entire presentation, the PowerPoint, the full manuscript will all be up at the, the DanielAiken.com website. So you can go there, get it if you want to, and do whatever you want to. So don't drive yourself crazy tonight just writing, 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 trying to keep up with me because that ain't going to happen because I talk as fast as I drive. Praise God, I can't get a ticket for talking, but I, so I'm moving on. And so just try to keep up with me and don't worry about that and it'll all be good. I promise you that. All right. But now, John 16, what does it say? I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth, literally in the text, it is when the spirit of the truth comes, uh, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, uh, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I believe that promise has a general application to you and me. But I believe it had a very specific application to the apostles who were with Jesus from the time of the baptism until the time of his resurrection and his ascension. Of course, we recognize immediately that Jesus introduced teachings that were new and striking. Indeed, John 7:46 says it so beautifully, no man ever spoke like this man. Now, here's the deal. There are some teachers out there, some theologians who would say, well, actually, there is a, a disconnect between what Jesus thought about the Bible or what Jesus believed and what was taught in the Old Testament. In other words, they will say that Jesus made a break with the Old Testament Scriptures. At least that's the opinion of some more liberal-minded scholars and theologians today, but nothing could be further from the truth. No, look at the text. Jesus says, Do not think, don't consider, that I came to abolish. The word means to destroy, annul, uh, abrogate, disintegrate, uh, demolish. Uh, to give you a word picture, think in terms of a house, and the Old Testament is this grand, glorious edifice, and Jesus is saying, I did not come to dismantle and tear apart this house called the Old Testament. No, I did not come to destroy it, but I came to fulfill it. And so you notice there's a very interesting antithesis here. Not The antithesis is not between abolish and keep, but rather between abolish and fulfill. In other words, Jesus provided not only an emphatic denial, but also a positive declaration for His coming. Why did you come, Jesus? I came to fulfill. I came to fill up. I came to complete 
the Scriptures, to set them aside was never, ever my agenda. Rather, I came to bring them to fulfillment. I came to bring them to fruition. That is why I came. Uh, our second speaker tonight is perhaps the most respected evangelical New Testament scholar, certainly in America, probably in the world. And so we're greatly honored to have a man of his unbelievable giftedness. And so I went to see what he had to say about this particular passage. And sure enough, in his book on, on the Sermon on the Mount, Dr. Carson says it very, very well. I quote, Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament in many ways. Because they point toward Him. He has certainly not come to abolish them. Rather, He has come to fulfill them in a rich diversity of ways. Jesus does not conceive of His life and ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament, but in terms of bringing to fruition that toward which it points. Thus, the law and the prophets, far from being abolished, find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus. The detailed prescriptions of the Old Testament may well be superseded because, and this is a very important statement, you see it, whatever is prophetic must be in some sense provisional. But whatever is prophetic likewise discovers its legitimate continuity in the happy arrival of that toward which it has pointed. In other words, the Old Testament was made happy with the coming of Christ, for he was what it was pointing to, and it was what it, the Old Testament and Christ's coming is what the Old Testament was waiting for. That's why, for example, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said this, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify to me. Now, how is it that the Old Testament testifies to Jesus? As, as Dr. Carson says, it does so in a multiplicity of ways. But I don't think anyone has been more helpful in this particular area than the wonderful Presbyterian pastor in, uh, in New York at Redeemer Presbyterian, a wonderful man by the name of Tim Keller. Many of you would know that name. He's written some marvelous books, Defending the Faith, and recently a great book on marriage, and has taught us a lot about what it means, listen to me now, what it means to read the Old Testament like a Christian. In other words, we don't read as Christians the Old Testament like a Jewish rabbi. No, we believe Genesis through Revelation is all Christian Scripture. And a few years ago in a, in a uh, periodical, uh, Dr. Keller wrote a wonderful little synopsis entitled, It's All About Jesus. And this is just one way that you can see how the Scriptures were pointing to Jesus and how He fulfills them. I, it, it will, I promise you, warm your heart greatly. Listen to what He says. You'll see it up on the slides. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the wilderness and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the better ark of Noah, who carries us safely through the wrath of God revealed from heaven and delivers us to a new earth. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the world not knowing where he, where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, 
who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And this is so good. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us, I would add, living water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Joshua who leads us into a land of eternal rest and heavenly blessing. He is the better ark of the covenant who topples and disarms the idols of this world, going himself into enemy territory and making an open spectacle of them all. This is perhaps my favorite. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. I like that. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Daniel, having been lowered into a lion's den of death, emerges early the next morning alive and vindicated by his God. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true uh, priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. Yes, the Bible really isn't about you. It's all about him. And Jesus indeed believed that all of the scriptures pointed to him. Now, the second major observation from this text, Jesus believed all the scriptures were perfect in detail. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Let's unwrap this verse. Verse 17 has affirmed a what we can call a promise fulfillment understanding of Jesus's view of the scripture, not a promise abolished paradigm that is foreign to the thinking of Jesus. Then verse 18 provides what we can call the Christological and the theological rationale of why he viewed the Bible as he did. Notice in verse 18, he introduces it with a note of personal authority that transcends that of the rabbis. For truly, or I tell you the truth, which is the, the Greek word amen. We get our word amen from it. It is unique to the ministry of Jesus. And it tells us that what is about to be said is of great uh, 
paramount importance and carries with it nothing less than divine authority. He says, until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, he's speaking of the fact that until the end of the age, as long as the present world order exists and persists. Now, now watch this. It's magnificent. Not an iota. Uh, the iota is a reference to what is called a yod in Hebrew, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Think of a comma. Think of an apostrophe. And that is what the, the Hebrew yod is. But secondly says, not a dot. And a dot is a small uh, projection. Or it's the, the part of a Hebrew letter which distinguishes it from another letter. I use the illustration in English. Think of what makes uh, and, and clarifies for us the difference between a, an F and a, and a backwards L. And it's just that little protrusion that makes the difference between the two letters. Then Jesus says, will by no means. Uh, the NIV says, will by, will not by any means. He actually uses a double negative to emphasize that this is not going to happen. It will not come to pass. And so Jesus could not say any more strongly. I mean, he's not just saying the words are, are, are inspired and the words come from God. He's saying the letters. He's even saying the, the part of a letter is not going to pass away until every single aspect of it is fulfilled. It shall not pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. In the Lucan parallel in Luke 16, 17, we read it. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. In other words, Jesus in the strongest possible language affirms the reliability and the truthfulness of the scriptures. And, and hear this very well. He is not saying the Old Testament contains some truth or that it becomes truth when men and women have a significant encounter with it. It is true whether you encounter it or not. It's true whether you believe it or not. You've heard the little ditty, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's not correct. God says it, that settles it whether you believe it or not. I believe you're wise to believe it, but whether you believe it or not is not going to in any way affect the authority, the reliability, the trustworthiness, and the truth of the Bible. Did Jesus affirm this elsewhere? He most certainly did. In John chapter 10, verse 35, our Lord said, The Scripture cannot be broken. In His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 17, speaking to His Father, Your word is truth. H.G.C. Mould, who was a wonderful New Testament scholar, said it this way. It's a very fine statement. Jesus absolutely trusted the Bible. And though there are in it things inexplicable and intricate that have puzzled me so much, well, I'm there, I understand that. I'm going, not in a blind sense, but reverently, to trust the book. Why? Because of Him. Again, let me quote our distinguished guest who will follow me, Dr. Carson. He says, and I quote, However difficult the interpretation of Matthew 5, 17 through 20 may be, or how disputed the exact nature of the fulfillment, surely it is clear that when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He thus assumes the truthfulness 
and reliability of the law, which in the context refers to all of the Scripture. And it is enshrined in the Scriptures. This is what Dr. Carson says is exactly going on here. So I would ask you now, would you like a little additional evidence that Jesus held the Old Testament, held the Bible in this very high regard? It's very interesting. If you survey the Gospels, it's almost as if Jesus intentionally goes to those very texts that the skeptics and the cynics and the more liberal-minded always raise as a problem and always say, well, that really could not have happened. That really could not have taken place. And it's those very kinds of texts that Jesus addresses. Let me just show you, drawing from John Wenham's wonderful book, Jesus and the Bible, a book I would commend to all of you. Listen to what Dr. Wenham says. I'll just note them. You'll see it on the screen first. Jesus consistently treated the historical narratives of the Old Testament as straightforward records of fact. He referred to Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, Isaac and Jacob, the manna, the wilderness serpent, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, and Moses, among others. Nowhere is there the slightest hint that he questioned their historicity or the accuracy of the account, not one. Secondly, it is interesting to note that Jesus often chose as the basis of his teaching those very stories that many skeptics find unacceptable. For example, Adam and Eve, Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the historical truthfulness that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Third, For Jesus, then, Scripture was the final court of appeal in his disputes with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Indeed, in their battle in the wilderness, both Jesus and Satan accepted scriptural statements as arguments against which no further argument was possible. Thus, Jesus might set aside or reject the rabbinic or pharisaical interpretation of the Old Testament. That, I would agree, he certainly did on a number of occasions. But he never questioned its authority or its truthfulness. I mentioned earlier a man by the name of Clark Pinnock. I was very shaped by his thinking when I was a Bible college student and then when I was in seminary. And again, his moving in a more liberal theological direction has grieved few people more than me. But early in his life, he made what I think was a very accurate and profound statement that has actually shaped my own thinking on this issue for all these years. And though he no longer believes this, I think to quote the Brits, he was spot on when he wrote this many years ago. Shall we follow Jesus in his view of Scripture? In the light of this evidence, the question calls for another. How can a Christian even consider not doing so? Our Lord's view of inspiration was not an incidental tenet on the border of his theology. His belief in the truthfulness of the Old Testament was the rock on which he based his own sense of vocation and the validity of much of his teachings. The question about the inspiration of Scripture really boils down to the issue of Christology. He agreed with my former colleague, Russ Bush. It is impossible to affirm his authority while at the same time seeking to evade his teachings regarding the divine authority of the Bible. If Christ claimed to be the Son of God is true, his person guarantees the truth of all the rest of his teachings as well. So long as Jesus Christ is confessed, honored, and adored, 
we may confidently expect a high view of Scripture to persist in the church. And in the light of a considerable defection from that view amongst professed Christians today, we boldly appeal for a return to a proper view of the Bible on the basis of the massive fact of our Lord's doctrine of inspiration. Let me close with a personal story. When I uh, went to Southern Seminary, I actually taught at Southeastern for four years from 1992 to, to 96, and then God in His providence uh, led me to Southern Seminary where I had the privilege of working alongside a dear friend, uh, Al Moeller, for, for eight years. When I went there, Southern Seminary was in the midst of a massive paradigm shift and a massive turn away from, really, just to be honest, liberal theology now to a evangelical theology. And so when I arrived there in 1996, there were uh, amongst the faculty some, some Bible-believing uh, evangelical inerrantists, those who held to the infallibility of the Bible. But there were also a number of professors that really regretted that Al was there and that I had now joined him. They were quite convinced that, that Al was the Antichrist and I was the false prophet, and uh, therefore we had been invaded by the demons. And they, they were not happy, but, you know, that was just the way it was. And so I tried to be pastoral. I, I tried to get to know all of them. I tried to get to pray with all of them. And, and I tried to be very honest with them and let them know where I was coming from and what I expected and where I thought the school would be moving in the day. Days ahead, and, and most of them realized that that meant that they probably would, would not remain there. Well, one uh, Friday, I took a man out to have uh, lunch. I will not name him. Uh, I will tell you that uh, he had gone to Germany and had studied under the very famous uh, New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, you, that means nothing to many of you, but the, 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 what does matter is he believed in what we call a demythologizing approach to the Bible, which is a fancy way of saying, wherever you find the supernatural, kick it to the curb. And what's left is what he calls something along the lines of a kernel of truth. And he actually said, really, all we can know for certain about Jesus is that he died uh, on a Roman cross. But he said, you know, we live in a world with electricity and jet planes. We live in a world where dead men don't rise. And so Bultmann certainly believes that Jesus is, uh, well, he used to. Uh, he's dead now. And so now he's got his theology right. In fact, I, I often pray that God may have let him in heaven. And if he did, he's on the back wall of a golden, uh, a golden wall there, writing a billion times, I was wrong, I was wrong, I was wrong. So that's where Bultmann may be, best case scenario, but I, I, I'm not certain of that. But anyway, Dr., uh, Dr. So-and-so, who I will not name, had studied under Bultmann. And so we sat down to have lunch. And he looked at me and he said, um, can I ask you a question? And I don't mean to be offensive by it at all. I really don't, but I'm afraid it will come across that way. And I said, well, no, you can, you can ask me anything you want. And he said, well, I just, I just want to ask you this. Uh, why do you think like you think? And, and, and why do you believe what you believe? I mean, you have a Ph.D., which, you know, means I should know better. But you, you have a Ph.D., and so I'm just trying to understand how someone who has this much education could believe the things you believe. And I said to him, I'm not offended by your, your question at all. I, I don't think you're going to be all that uh, impressed with my answer, but here it is. When I was about 10 years old, I got saved. I, I got saved. I, I, I repented of my sin. I put all my faith and trust in Jesus, and I believe he saved me. And so when I was 10, I got saved. 
Then I shared with him, much to my shame, that I, I did not really walk with the Lord as a teenager. And in fact, hardly any of my friends when I was in high school would have known that I was a Christian because I, I just did not uh, follow Christ very well. I, I, I just didn't. But when I was 19, the, the Lord, in great love and, and with pretty, pretty heavy discipline, got back involved in my life. And I can still remember in the North Georgia mountains on a uh, Saturday when we were there for a retreat that I'd begun to go back to church a little bit, and we were just told, go out into the woods, get alone, and spend an hour in your Bible on your knees. And I will tell you, God got a hold of my heart, and all of a sudden, I can't explain it, but I just can tell you, I, I, I fell madly, madly, madly in love with Jesus all over again. I just did. And all of a sudden, I was just passionate about Him. And so I wanted to know what He thought about everything, and I wanted to think exactly like he thinks about everything. And 35 years later, at the age of 55, that has not changed. I still love him, and I want to think like he thinks about everything. And so I told this professor that uh, when I began to study, I discovered that Jesus said not a, a jot or a dot, not an iota or a dot will pass away till all of it's fulfilled. He, he said the Scriptures cannot be broken he said, they all testify of me. He said, thy word is truth. And I said, you know, even Bultmann said Jesus believed all of the Bible was inspired. He just simply believes Jesus was wrong. I happen to think Jesus was right. And so I believe what I believe about the Bible, that it is the absolute, true, trustworthy, infallible, and inerrant word of God, because I believe that's what living under the lordship of Jesus would lead me to believe. And he looked at me, and amazingly to me, very smart, very educated, very intelligent, Greek and New Testament scholar said, and I quote, you know, I've never thought about it like that before, but that does make a lot of sense. And we had lunch. I close with this. If there ever comes a time in your life when you become convinced that this book is a book containing or even filled with errors, please make sure you recognize two things. Number one, you're saying that Jesus was wrong. And number two, at least on this issue, you're saying that you are smarter than Jesus. I want to challenge you tonight. That's not a road that you want to walk down. Because I can tell you this, it is a, a dead end. No, as an atheistic friend of mine said so well one day when I asked him what was the bottom line, he said, that's easy. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, there is a God, he is that God, and the Bible is true because he said so. I would submit to you that's pretty good theology, even if it actually came from an atheist. Perhaps the atheist, at least in this instance, is smarter than many who would, like this girl, say, oh, I believe there are errors in the Bible, but I still believe in Jesus anyway. No, if you believe in Jesus as you should, you will also believe about the Bible, just like Jesus did. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the witness of our Savior that is contained in your word. And, Lord, indeed, I believe if he is Lord of our lives, as we sang tonight, then we want to think like he thinks about everything, including what he thinks about the Bible. 
And yes, he clearly affirmed the complete truthfulness and reliability of the Old Testament. And he promised through the ministry of the Spirit in the lives of the apostles that they would be guided into truth as they wrote their testimony about him in the New Testament. And Lord, if indeed there is an empty tomb, and we believe there is, then there is a God-man who now resides in heaven, a God-man who is without error, who is without sin, who can be completely trusted in anything and everything, including what he said about the Bible. So, Jesus, you are Lord, and may it be that we live under your Lordship when it comes to what we think and what we believe about this wonderful book called the Bible. We ask and pray all of this in your strong name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.